Well, church, if you can, please turn your Bibles to our main preaching text this morning in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 in verse 38. Once you have that, please do stand for the reading of God's word. Our main text this morning again is Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Hear ye the word of the Lord this morning. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted of much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Spend a moment in prayer. Father, we do come before you again, anxious to receive this word, that it may speak to our hearts and our souls and minister to us in such a way, Lord, that we would leave this place edified and encouraged, that we would be uh, built up in the inner man, Lord, so that we may be ready for the events of this week ahead. Father, you are sovereign over the events that are about to transpire in this coming week. We ask, Lord, that through your word you would strengthen us, edify us, Give us the sustenance needed so that we may be empowered to live the life that you've called us to, a life of kingdom service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, here we come to this point in the gospel narrative where Jesus has taught us about the parable of the Good Samaritan, the good neighbor. And now he's at, uh, transitioning to a place in which he's entering someone's home and ministering in this context. And what we see as the gospel sets up this scenario, in verse 30, again, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now, this is significant in some cultural ways that we may not pick up on right away. But understand this, within the time period of the first century, in which is even still true today in rabbinic Judaism, uh, there is not a mixing very well of men and women. In fact, if you go to a synagogue today, it is not uncommon to find there to be a distinction between where the women sit and where the men sit. The same is true of another monotheistic religion called Islam. In Islam, when you go to a mosque, they have a separate section for women and a separate section for men, and there's very little uh, intermingling. In fact, if you are an imam, if you are the akin to a pastor within Islam, you're not even to shake hands with a woman that is not your wife. The same is true if you're a rabbi. If you are of the rabbinic tradition, you are not to even shake hands with a person of the opposite sex that is not your spouse or immediate family. There's these clear lines of delineation. Now, some of these things were cultural, some of them were out of uh, religious conviction, but we see early in the life and ministry of Jesus is that Jesus steps into history and he begins to undo the cultural norms of his day. 
So as he goes from village to village, town to town, he stops in this particular village, and he meets this woman named Martha, and he goes into her home. Now, we know from the story he doesn't necessarily go in alone, which would have been seen as even more scandalous. But what is scandalous in itself is that Jesus is agreeing to meet with this woman and going to her home. This is, there's a scandalous nature to the life and ministry of Jesus. All the cultural norms that you would think he would abide by, he flips them upside down. Why? Because Jesus is in the business of changing not only hearts but also minds. And in cultural distinctions, we tend to get caught up in our cultural battles, don't we? Look at what's called commonly today in our culture here, called the culture wars, between left and right, between uh, uh, all these factions and groups of what is right, what is wrong, and trying to determine these things. And Jesus steps into that fray, and he undoes many preconceived notions as he steps into this woman's house. And so here, as we're setting up the stories, we're setting up the scenario, Jesus is welcomed by Martha and Mary. Now, what says in verse 39 is interesting. It says, And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So Jesus comes into this woman's home. This woman is very uh, 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 welcoming to Jesus and, and brings Jesus and is very uh, service-centered and she wants to serve Jesus well. And his sister, and, and Martha's sister, marries her, not to be confused with Mary, uh, the mother of Christ. But here you have Martha and Mary, both sisters, welcoming Jesus. But Martha is about her business. She's about managing her household and managing her guests well. And Mary, on the other hand, she comes into this scenario, and she immediately sits at the feet of the Lord and begins to hear his teaching. So if you're following along in today's notes, if you got a bulletin this morning, there should have been notes put in there for you. If you follow along in today's teaching, Jesus was welcomed by Martha and Mary who sits at his feet. Now, this is an interesting little piece of data here that Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. What Mary is demonstrating and what the gospel writer Luke is trying to demonstrate here as well is that Mary has the posture of a disciple. Because we, term, we, we, we use this term a lot in Christianity today. We use the term disciples and disciple makers. But what is a disciple? Simply put, a disciple is someone who sits at the feet of a teacher. It's literally the posture of a disciple is to be lowly, is to have your, 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 your body towards one's feet. That's the posture of a disciple. And here Mary is demonstrating this brilliantly and perfectly that as Jesus is teaching, she sits readily at the feet of the Savior, showing that she herself desires to be a disciple, one who learns from the Master, one who learns from the great teacher. But this is not without its controversy. In verse 40 it says, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went to, up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, I love this. Typical sibling rivalry. Maybe you've had experiences like this if you grew up in a household with siblings or if you have a household with, with kids where immediately 
if you're doing the brunt of the work, you feel like, hey, what's going on here? This isn't fair. Why am I doing all the work and my sister gets to sit down, be the pretty little girl, just getting to get all the benefits? Why isn't she helping? See, that's a conversation we probably all have had in our families at one point or another. Why am I doing all the work and why is she doing so little? Or vice versa. Here again, you have this, this typical family arrangement, this typical family uh, 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 discourse where Martha feels like what is happening is unjust. Martha is trying to be a good host. She's trying to be a good neighbor. She likely is hearing, has heard some of the teachings of Jesus, which is why she readily accepts him into her home. She, she too wants to learn. She too has a desire to, to hear what the master has to say. But her business is in being distracted with the serving duties. The same is true not only amongst siblings or in households, but it's also true in the church of God. Oftentimes within a church context, there are a few that serve the many. That's just true of every church. There's always a handful, maybe five to ten people, who are just really, really good at serving. While the rest of us get to sit down and eat and enjoy the lunch that we're about to have and that we have every Sunday, there are those in the back who are serving, who are preparing. And then there are those who go and help set the table so that we can all be served. There are so many people who do so much unseen and unpraised things amongst the people of God. And one of the things that we have to be careful with, church, is that we don't forget those who are lost in the shuffle. You know, it means a lot just to say a simple thank you to those who help prepare the meal, for those who help serve and uh, prepare the tables for us. A simple acknowledgement of the work and of the efforts of people can go a long way. And Martha probably feels a little bit underappreciated in the story. She probably feels, you know what, it's always like this. I'm always the one who has to do more, and I don't even get recognition for it. Well, there's a danger in that as well, beloved. Because when we get into that mindset of bitterness and start saying, well, why am I doing so much? I don't get any praise. I don't get any attention. I don't get any benefit out of this. We have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of our service? Do we serve for the accolades? Do we serve for the attention? Or do we serve out of a posture of discipleship, which is to be at the feet of the teacher, to be at the feet of the master? See, our posture will oftentimes determine how our heart condition actually is in any given situation. What do I mean by that? Is that the posture you have of being either willingly serving or begrudgingly serving will inform not only yourself and those around you, but also shows the Lord the, the heart behind the action. Mary chooses to be at the feet of Christ. Instead of helping serve in the household duties of a good host. Now, we might want to think of this in terms of white and black. Well, who's right, who's wrong in this scenario? Martha clearly wants to be a good host. Mary 
is not necessarily being a bad host. So these are not mutually exclusive things. Both Martha and Mary are doing things that are necessary. Just as in God's church, all of us come together in unison to work together for the good, the common good of the people of God and for the advancement of Christ's gospel. But it also means that there are going to be times in which we're not necessarily doing the same tasks. There are those who serve tables. There are those who teach. There are those who give up their time and their efforts in other ways. But we all ought to have that common desire to serve the master. Whether it's, whether it's by serving the tables, setting the tables, or whether it's by sitting at the feet of the teacher. We all have a role to play in God's church. So again, here in this scenario, Martha and Mary both are, 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 are serving Christ in their, in their own way. Martha by being a good host. Mary by listening attentively to the good teacher. But Jesus points something else out in this scenario that is important. And, and Scripture itself points this out in verse 40, which says this, But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Notice again how it opens up in verse 40. Martha was distracted. Distracted with much serving. Sometimes our posture or our, 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 our purpose or our doing of things, our purpose of, of serving is as a means of distraction. And it doesn't come from a heart or posture of a disciple. What I mean by that, sometimes, especially as Americans, we like being busy for the sake of being busy. I had a co-worker when I worked at, in Canada, of all places, a place called Hope Mission. And my co-worker, uh, he drank like 10 coffees a day. He was always just 100 miles a second. And uh, anytime we, we try to stop and have a conversation, he's like, I can't stop right now. I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. He's just always running around, always, always doing something. And at a certain point, I said, I said, brother, you just got to take a minute and breathe. It's okay. Emergencies will come and go. Things can wait. Take a breather. Why? Because sometimes we become so obsessed with just being busy that we forget to be productive in the work of the Lord. Busyness does not always mean productiveness. These are not two things that are always equal. And the same is true within God's economy, within God's church. Sometimes we are busy, 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 busy. But are we being effective? Are we serving well? Are we remembering that the reason for our service is because there are other human beings made in God's image who we want to love, minister to? and help them see even more the brilliance of the gospel of Christ, that should be our posture as disciples. That the purpose for our service, the purpose for our doing, is so that Christ might be magnified and that people may know and love God even greater. Therefore, fulfilling the original call of being a good neighbor in the story of the Good Samaritan. Where being a good neighbor isn't just about being busy or just about serving, but it's the heart of the Good Samaritan. It's the heart of wanting to make sure that this person is okay, that this person is being served well, that I'm going to take of my time, money, and effort to make sure that these people are being loved and cherished in Jesus' name. 
Again, that's the difference between the posture of a disciple and the posture of a busybody. There's a word the Scripture uses elsewhere in Scripture in 1 Timothy. The Bible warns us against being busybodies. Again, busybodies being someone who has the appearance of being busy and kind of always in people's businesses, but never actually producing any kingdom fruit. Beware of the sin of busybodiness. Don't be a busybody. Serve well. Serve from a sincere heart. Don't become distracted with much serving for the, for the sake of being distracted or serving. Serve well from a good conscience and a heart that's overflowing with the gospel. Again, this was Martha's uh, 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 anxiousness that was at play here. And so if you're following along in the teaching, Martha's upset that Mary isn't helping her serve. That's where the contention is with Martha and Mary in this scenario between the two sisters. Martha's upset that Mary isn't helping her serve. And Jesus knows that she is anxious and troubled. Why? Notice verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. Martha, Martha. Isn't this interesting? How the Lord uh, just calls her out. Almost like a father would call out to a daughter. You ever had that time when son or daughter just isn't getting it? And you just have to sigh and go, Don't you get it? Don't you see? Isn't it clear? Isn't it plain? And Jesus, I think, having that similar heart and posture, almost a father to a daughter saying, Martha, Martha. Not necessarily in a judgmental way in which he's waving his finger at her, but rather in almost a, a, a sigh of, 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 of desire for her to get it. Martha, don't you get it? Don't you see what's actually happening here? I think the Lord was gentle to Martha in this rebuke. But he rebukes her nonetheless. Jesus knows that she's anxious and that she's troubled. Now why is she anxious? Why is she troubled? Well, Martha probably has a servant's heart. She's eager and willing to serve. But understandably, when she sees that her sister uh, is not helping, but instead she's at the feet of Jesus listening and learning, and she gets frustrated. Maybe she's asking herself Similar questions such as this. Why isn't she helping? What makes her so special? Why is she so lazy? Martha rebukes her sister with her question to Jesus, surely believing that Jesus would probably side with her and call out Mary for her rudeness and for her sloth. But instead, Jesus softly rebukes her with again, that Martha, Martha. And by pointing out that she is anxious and troubled by many things. Know this, church. Anxiousness and a troubled spirit are distractions and hindrances to God's will and purpose for us. Okay? Anxiousness and a troubled spirit are things that will detract us from God's purpose and will. Why? My previous, uh, couple previous churches, uh, my first church that I went to when I got saved, I remember that uh, they have a, outside, out, uh, a sign on the outside, 
And there'll always be these really cool little catch, you know, one-liners. And one of the one-liners that always stuck with me was the pastor had put sin, or sorry, uh, anxiousness is the sin of not trusting in God. Think about that for a moment. Anxiousness is the sin of not trusting in God. When we are anxious, and the scripture says do not be anxious for anything, but when we're anxious, we have this anticipation, this worry begins to swell up in us. We begin to think and contemplate about today and tomorrow's worries, and they begin to compound. And what happens is that when we are so in, 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 enveloped by anxiousness, we fail to be productive. We can't be productive. Why? Because our, our mind is running 100 miles a second, so much like my coworker that I mentioned earlier. He was always running around, always running around with the appearance of busyness, but sometimes things just weren't getting done. And because what is required at times is not just to be going from one place to another, but sometimes just being still, taking in the information. Whereas the Bible says in Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. Be still. It's in the stillness that God often speaks to us through his word. Think of the prophet Elijah when he too was being confronted with various troubles, and he had every reason to be troubled in his spirit. Whirlwinds, earthquakes, and yet it was in the stillness, in the quietness, that he was able to hear God's voice. So too for us, Jesus is able to calm the storms of life. Those storms will come. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we are now adopting or coming into an easy life the void of hardship, the void of trials, but rather that when we are in the midst of those trials, we have within our possession the cure to anxiousness, the cure to anxiety, the cure to stress, and that is our provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus is that perfect Savior who can calm any storm, who can speak to us in any circumstance, and with that sometimes even just soft rebuke, of Martha, Martha. He'll let us know what his will is for us. And so again, beware, beloved, of harboring a critical spirit. And do not allow a root of bitterness to take hold in your life and your attitude towards other servants of God, such as Martha and Mary are now entangled in. Martha has no reason to be bitter towards her sister. Rather, she should rejoice that she is creating an opportunity for her sister to sit at the feet of the master. Again, developing a posture, a heart of a disciple here. In verse 42 of Luke 10 again, it says this. Jesus says the following. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the good portion. You see, the Lord reveals that there is one thing that is necessary for life. I want you to write in this word if you're following in the notes. The Lord reveals that there's one thing that is necessary for life. 
which is Jesus himself. You know what's necessary for life? It's Jesus. The Bible says this concerning Christ, that by him and for him were all things made in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, and all things are held and consist by him. All things. The reason why your fingers don't fly off your hand this morning is because he's holding all things together. The reason why the, the planets are aligned in such a fashion as they are is not just because of gravity, but because of he who created gravity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's able to sustain all things by the word of his power. This same Jesus, it is said of him that he is your life. And when he is revealed, so will you be revealed with him in glory. Jesus is our life. Why? Because he is the creator of all things. He made you. He fashioned you. He knew you before you even came to be. This Jesus has called you now effectually, as we've learned this morning, into this grace in which we now stand. And he beckons you, whatever your name may be, Martha, Martha, come to me. Cease your anxiousness. Cease your distrust of me. Come at my feet and learn. That's what he beckons every single one of us to do this morning. Because Jesus is what is necessary for life. Thereby he's demonstrating his sufficiency. And let me make this even more clear for you if you're not understanding yet. As I just mentioned, this Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. It says in the prophet Jeremiah, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for him? Well, we know the answer. There's nothing too hard for him, but sometimes the way we live, we live as if there's things that are too hard for God to handle. And how do we know that? Just look at your anxiety. Look at the things that stress you. Look at the things that you feel you have no control over. God has control over all things, all circumstances. There's nothing beyond his sovereignty and his sovereign control. Therefore, trust in God. When we feel like our world is falling apart, trust in God. When we feel like our finances are going down the tubes, Trust in God. When we feel like everything around us in our relationships is crumbling, trust in God. Trust in Him. Oftentimes our anxieties demonstrate where it is that we're failing to trust God in. So whenever you find yourself stressed, ask yourself, have I submitted this to the cross? Have I, have I submitted to the lordship of Jesus in this circumstance and situation? And maybe again, you'll hear the soft rebuke of Jesus reminding you, beckoning you of what is necessary. Mary, in this picture, in this scenario, chooses the good portion, chooses to trust God. And I want to share with you very quickly this morning the cure to our anxiety. It's found in Matthew chapter 6. I want you to turn there for a moment. Keep your finger in Luke. But turn to Matthew chapter 6 for a moment. <coughs> Let's examine verse 25 for a moment. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. 
These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the Sermon of the Mount. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now one of the things I absolutely detest, and I know that many of you detest, because my wife detested as well, when times are tough or when you're anxious and someone just says, calm down, calm down. I've tried it so many times, but my wife never seems to calm down. It just doesn't work that way, does it? If it was that simple, like, oh, why did I think of that? Calm down, of course. Oh, now I'm calm. Wonderful. If it was that simple only, wouldn't life be so good? Wouldn't life be so much easier? But what if I told you that there is a hack to this, that there is a, a simplicity to this? When Jesus says, do not be anxious, it's not because he's coming with his hands empty. Usually when we tell someone, hey, don't be anxious, hey, don't worry about it, we come with empty hands. But Jesus is not coming into this scenario with empty hands. He's giving us instead the cure to our stress, the cure to our worries, the cure to our anxieties. And where can it be found? Look at verse 31 with me for a moment. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why can Jesus with authority declare, do not be anxious, do not worry about tomorrow? Why? Because he's offering us something even better to live for today than just our worries and our stresses and our anxieties. He's saying, trust in me. Put the kingdom of God first in his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Which is to say, one of the sins of anxiety is that we make that which we are anxious over bigger than our God. That's what we do. We make this problem bigger than God. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do it. Trust in me. I'm bigger. I'm better. And I hold the answer that you're looking for. Therefore, it is when we put the kingdom of God first, his righteousness first, that we can have confidence that regardless of my problem, regardless of my challenges, I know ultimately God's got me. I know that even if I fall, there's someone to catch me. And his name is Jesus. What a wonderful Savior he is. Amen? What a good Savior Jesus is. So when he tells us don't be anxious about tomorrow, it's because he alone knows what tomorrow brings. When he says that tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, it's its own trouble, Jesus is demonstrating his superiority, his sufficiency, his grandeur over time and space. Because sometimes the things that we're stressed over are things that God already has an answer for tomorrow. Therefore, why stress over it? 
As a pastor, sometimes I receive phone calls from people who are anxious, people who've got an emergency. And at the moment, in the heat of the moment, every emergency feels bigger than it actually is. And sometimes people say, well, can, can I meet right away? I, need, I really need to meet. I really need to talk about this. I say, well, let's meet tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and I give a call and say, hey, did you still want to meet? Hey, how's this situation? Pastor, everything's better now. Everything is fixed. Usually that's is what, what we need is just some time. God's got tomorrow. God's already got it covered. Trust, trust, trust in Jesus. Trust in him. And so what we see here again is that Jesus says to Mary that Mary had chosen the good portion. I want you to write this in the notes. Jesus said that Mary had chosen the good portion. What is that good portion? Jesus spoke of this good portion elsewhere, and we examined this several weeks, if not months ago, when Jesus taught on this good measure, pressed down, shaken together. And the good measure is that of being an engaged disciple. I want you to write this in the notes. The good portion here is to be found to be an engaged disciple. Again, the whole picture that is set up here is that of a disciple in the main text of Mark or Luke chapter 10. She finds herself at the feet of the teacher. That's the posture of a disciple. And she's engaged with what the teacher is teaching, with what the Lord Jesus is bringing to her. Showing us all what it means and what it looks like to partake in the good portion. Being an engaged disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to spend the last couple of moments here to go over the tale of three Christians. And so I want you to follow, follow along in your notes as I describe three different Christians. The first will be what I will call a disengaged Christian. And a disengaged Christian is where the faith isn't practiced outside of the church. The disengaged Christian finds a place for faith at church and at the privacy of their own home, but have no place for faith in their roles with family members, friends, or in their professional lives. Another term for this I would use is a closeted Christian. Someone who professes Christ on Sundays, but there is little to no fruit or evidence of a Christian testimony or witness Monday to Saturday. This is a disengaged Christian. Now let's give these individuals the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they actually are Christians, not putting in doubt their salvation, but thinking for a moment, these are three types of Christians that we can generally see within Christendom today. The disengaged Christian is, again, one where the faith isn't practiced outside of the church. And typically what I'll hear from these types of disengaged Christians is that, oh, I believe everything the Bible says. I believe this is God's word. But my faith in Jesus is very personal. And what they usually mean when they say it's very personal is that they mean it's very private. 
that it's just between me and Jesus. You know, it's not something I, I, I don't, I don't want to persuade people to believe what I believe. Everyone has their own way of thinking. Beloved, that's, that's, that's true. A lot of people have their own way of thinking. And most of the thinking is wrong. Okay? Let's just call it what it is. Not to make ourselves more superior or to puff ourselves up with knowledge, but look at the state of the world. The Bible says this concerning ancient Israel, and it's all probably more true today, that everyone has gone astray and has done what is right in their own eyes. You see, we live in a world where everyone thinks what they're doing is the right thing. And how's that working out for the world? More disorder, more chaos, more distractions, more sin, more recklessness. All these things are abounding in the world because everyone is doing that which is right in their own eyes. Ignorance is now virtuous in the world that we live in. And a disengaged Christian also engages in that mindset by saying things to that degree that, you know what? Everyone's got their own way of thinking. Ignorance is magnified in that type of worldview. And I said it to my Sunday school this morning, and I'll say it to you all today. Ignorance is not a virtue. There is nothing virtuous about being ignorant of God's truth. God will call us all to account. Every single person who has ever lived, regardless of their knowledge of the gospel, will be held to an account for their ignorance. For the, for the Bible says this in Romans 1, man is truly without excuse. Why? Because his personhood is exemplified in the things that he has created. Creation speaks of the grandeur of the creator. The witness of our conscience in Romans 2 also is evident of this holy God in which he has written his laws on our hearts so intrinsically everyone knows murder is wrong, adultery is wrong, stealing is wrong. We all know these things intrinsically. Why? Because God has laid that law upon our hearts so that men are without excuse. The third witness in Romans 3 is the witness of Jesus Christ himself who has come into the world, who died a death that we deserved and was raised again on the third day, demonstrating that God has given us a trifecta of witnesses, creation, conscience, and Christ. Therefore, man is truly without excuse. There is no reason, biblical reason, why a Christian ought to remain disengaged. A disengaged Christian is a Christian in rebellion. Next one. A contemplative Christian. And this Christian is where there's a desire to apply Christianity, but it never translates into meaningful action. So in other words, though they desire to bring their faith in Jesus to the community around them, their desire never translates into any meaningful action. And I think that's where probably most Christians in most Christian churches find themselves in today. Most Christians want to learn more, want to apply the gospel, want to do missions, but this desire never translates into meaningful action. So again, though they've adopted, they have not adopted these unwritten rules about leaving their faith at home, their approach to the Christian life in this area leaves them with a deep sense of longing for something more in their living as a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Something is missing in that walk. 
So again, you have a disengaged Christian, someone who thinks that, hey, we shouldn't really be engaged in the world. We, we, faith is something that's private. Then you have the contemplative Christian who, who thinks, well, no, that, that probably isn't the right way of going about it. I, I really do want to engage the world, but I don't know how. I don't know how. What do we learn from the story of Martha and Mary? Martha believes that she's engaged, but she's engaged in the wrong ways. Mary doesn't seem to be engaged in the ways that would be productive, but is actually engaged in the way that is truly meaningful, learning, being at the feet of Jesus. The purpose of being at the feet of Jesus is to lead us not just to be disengaged or to be contemplative, but rather sitting at the feet of Jesus results in being a missional Christian, which is the third Christian. A missional Christian is one who is actively practicing Christianity through obedience. Through obedience. Why do we sit and learn at the feet of the teacher? So that we can learn to obey his commands. That's why we sit at the feet of the teacher. So in contrast to both the disengaged Christian and the, and the um, contemplative Christian, missional Christians have sought to orient their lives around a model of Christ's engagement with the lost. Rather than disengaging with those outside the Christian community, missional Christians seem to find natural ways to bring their love for Jesus to those outside the family of God in natural and authentic ways. You see, Jesus is the model for evangelism. He's the model for missions. He's able to cut through the noise of life and speak to the human heart and soul. Because Jesus knows well the human condition. And he knows well the antidote to our problems. So we too, as missional Christians, who actively obey the call of Christ to go and make disciples, we must learn from Christ how to make effective disciples for the kingdom. The foundation of missional Christianity is observable, of course, in the life and teachings of Jesus. Let's turn to this foundation then. Because no matter how we look to other Christians and how they live their lives, they're only partial help in these examples in our current day. So that's to say, if we, look at, if we just want to look at other Christians, we're always going to find something missing. But if we look at Jesus, we'll find the answers that we're looking for. As a pastor, I know that I have not been a perfect pastor. There are times in which I fall short of ministering to you well. But if you look to Jesus, you won't be disappointed. If you look to me, you'll be disappointed. Sorry to say. But if you look to Christ, you'll never disappoint. And all those who put faith in Jesus will never be put to shame. So we want to look to Jesus as our prime example, the example of Christ. Missional Christianity certainly is no invention of, of the day. It's kind of a buzzword in our day. In fact, this, using this term missional or missionality, they're often heard in books that we read, we find it in literature, but the foundation of missional Christianity finds its basis in the very life of Jesus. And this is where we have to come to this conclusion. 
We must follow Christ together. Together. Because we all have a deficit. See, Mary and Martha both need each other. You need one who serves, and you need one who listens. And sometimes you need to do a little bit of both. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, The New Testament does not envision a solitary religion. Some kind of regular assembly for worship and instruction is everywhere taken for granted in the epistles. The church is not a human society of people united by their natural affinities, but it is the body of Christ complementing and helping one another precisely by their differences. You see, the beauty of Christ's body, the beauty of the local church is that we're all just a little bit different. And we all serve just a little bit differently. If Martha could have just seen that in Mary, they wouldn't have had that argument. They wouldn't have had that interchange. But if we see this in each other, that we're all just a little bit different, and we all serve a little bit differently, but we're all serving towards the same Savior and the same work and the same mission, we here at Silicon Valley Reform Baptist Church can truly become a force that changes not just this community, but this region and maybe even the world. Because our faith and our Savior is the one who turned the world upside down. May you come to know this Jesus, this Savior, who lived a holy, perfect, blameless life, never sinned. He died the death that you and I deserve, being crucified next to two criminals. And on the third day, he rose again from that, from that grave, demonstrating that he had power and authority over life and death itself. And he beckons you today to trust in him. Repent of your unbelief, repent of your sins, and put your faith in Jesus, who's a good and trustworthy Savior. And he'll redeem you, and he'll change you from the inside out and save you of an eternal salvation that can be neither taken nor denied. To him belongs the glory, both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you, humbly asking that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge where we fall short. Help us to acknowledge in the ways that we're busy just for the sake of being busy. Help us, Lord, to identify the areas in our lives where we're not being fruitful for Christian mission. And help us, Lord, not to be disengaged, nor just contemplative, but to be missional by obeying the call of the Great Commission that you have given us, your people, your church, to go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching men to observe all that you have commanded. And you've promised us this, that you shall be with us even until the end of the age. Yes, come, Lord Jesus. In your name we do pray. Amen. Amen.